The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 20 if you haven't already. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. So we are beginning our Advent series simply entitled The Advent. I know, creative. The word Advent literally means coming, and this season looks back to the first coming of Christ. That's typically how we think about it. The prophets foretold that God would send a Savior, and from the last prophetic promise until the birth of Jesus, God's people actually waited 400 years. And so each year we take four weeks, one week for each century, we take four weeks to wait And to look back on God's faithfulness. He promised to send a Savior, and He did. But Advent is not just a season of looking back, it's also a season of looking forward. Looking back on God's faithfulness is meant to cause us to look forward in faith. God promised to send a Savior, and He did. And God has promised that Christ will come again, and He will. This is our hope. And in this season, our hope shines brightly, and not just from the first candle of the Advent wreath, but our hope shines brightly for the second Advent of Jesus from the pages of Revelation itself. Shades, Advent is the perfect season for us to be finishing our study on the book of Revelation because the Revelation concludes with the Advent. And there is no greater place for us to begin than Revelation chapter 20. Begin reading with me. Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, the Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, the final chapters of Revelation, we know, have been zooming in for us on the end of evil so that we won't be deceived by it and latch on to it. It's been zooming in on the end of evil, showing us where it ends so that we won't be deceived to death, but we will actually be led to life. If you remember, chapter 18 zoomed in for us on the end of evil societies through the fall of Babylon. 
Chapter 19 zoomed in on the end of evil world powers through the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. And right here, the opening verses of chapter 20 give me a sneaking suspicion that we're about to see the end of the dragon, Satan himself. We're being shown the end of evil so that it won't deceive us to death, but instead we will cling to Christ and be led to life. We're we're being shown this so we'll cling to Christ who will one day come and claim the victory, bring full and final life forever. And to all of that, I say yes and amen. But Shades, I'm left asking, what about now? Like, yes, Christ will come one day. Like, I know victory is coming, but right now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I often live in defeat. Yes, I know a new world of life and light is coming, but right now the headlines sure make me feel like we live in a world of darkness and death. I know that Christ is coming, but right now my life feels like one giant season of Advent. A season of groan-filled waiting. Tear-filled longing. Prayer-filled hoping. Season of Advent is not the same as the world treats the Christmas season. Christmas season for the world is just taking the Christmas celebration that you do on December 25th and just kind of backing it up and extending it for a couple of months. So you just got to walk around and be joyous and slap a happy face on. You know, you better not pout, you better not cry. You got to like put a happy face on because otherwise you don't have the Christmas spirit. That is not Advent. Advent is a season that recognizes that Christmas isn't here yet. It longs. It waits. And I want to know, is there any victory right now in my Advent-like life? In the midst of the longing, the hoping, the waiting, in the midst of the tears, the groaning, and the praying, is there any victory now? Shades. I believe that Revelation 20 reveals not only that there will be victory one day, but that there is victory right now because Christ has already been victorious. And Revelation 20 reveals that seeing this victory is meant to empower victory in us right now. This chapter aims to bring about what we just sang about a few moments ago. We sang a beautiful chorus that's tacked on to the end of Silent Night. Visible the hope grows in the black where nobody knows. We smile in the mystery in the light where nobody sees. This, this chapter is aimed to, aims to bring that about. It aims to make our hope grow right now in the midst of the darkness of this world where nobody where it seems like nobody else sees or believes in the hope to which we cling we are being empowered to smile in the mystery of the gospel that evil has been defeated it is defeated and it will be defeated revelation 20 reveals the victory empowering victory in us let's see it and be empowered together we're going to see three things. We're going to see the victory that has happened, the victory that is happening, the victory that will happen, how evil has been defeated, is defeated, and will be defeated. So first, see the victory of Christ in the past. See the victory of Christ in the past. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, or we might say for a millennium. Now, I believe that these verses right here are describing the victory of Christ in the past. I'm going to try and unpack that for you in a minute. It's describing the victory of Christ in his first advent, when through his life, death, and resurrection, he did what Hebrews 2.14 describes. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I believe that's what these first three verses of Revelation 20 are describing. Victory of Christ in the past. Now, not everybody agrees with me. Revelation 20 is actually the most debated chapter in this entire book. Some of you know that, some of you may be like, really? But it is. Perhaps you've even often heard uh, the labels used for different interpretive approaches to this chapter, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, or perhaps you've even heard people jokingly say that they are panmillennialists, meaning they believe that it's all going to pan out in the end. This morning, 
we do not have time to explore all of these different interpretive approach, approaches. And, and, and this is not meant to be a lecture on millennial positions any way. If you want something along those lines, I highly encourage that you listen to the upcoming Shades Midweek podcast that will release later this week. We're going to take a deep dive into all of that. But this morning is not a lecture, it's a sermon. My goal is to try and not be as lecturish as possible. My goal is to prayerfully try to faithfully unpack what I believe the text does say. What, what it, why it says what it says and how it empowers you right now. So, I believe that these first three verses of Revelation 20 are about the victory of Christ in the past. And I believe that for two primary reasons. First, because of what we have been seeing Revelation do since chapter 16. If you remember, Revelation 16 was where we saw the bowls of God's wrath poured out. It gave us a big, like Goodyear blimp view of the end of evil. Big overarching picture of the end of evil. And if you remember, it concluded with the war. It's a technical term, only appears three times in all of Revelation. Concluded with the war, where we saw in the war the end of Babylon, the end of the beast, the end of the false prophet, and the end of the dragon, Satan. They were all defeated in the war. Since the end of chapter 16, Revelation has been zooming in on the end of each of those figures individually. So chapter 17 and 18, backed up and zoomed in to show us again the end specifically of Babylon. In chapter 19, backed up, zoomed in again specifically to show us the end of the beast and the false prophet. And now, Revelation 20 is backing up again, and zooming in to show us the end of the dragon, Satan himself. But, this time, it backs up even farther. It doesn't just back up just to cover the war again. It backs up even farther than that. I think that because the war is going to be described for us when we get to verses 7 to 10. So everything that comes before that, verses 1 through 6, is backing up even further. Why? Why is Revelation backing up even further this time? I think it's because... Revelation aims to reveal not just that evil will end one day, but that it has already been defeated. It shades, in other words, if all it did was show us the end of the dragon, it would be really easy for us to read these last couple of chapters of Revelation and think, that's great. That's great that Christ is going to come one day and put an end to Babylon, the beast, false prophet, and put an end to uh, the dragon. It's great that he's going to come and one day the victory will be won, but there's obviously no victory now. To that mindset, Revelation 20 says, no, 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 no. It's not just that victory will come one day. No, it's that the victory has already been won. So, in its final portrayal of the end of evil, Revelation backs all the way up to show us the decisive moment when that victory was first won. It, it backs up to show us the decisive moment first of evil's defeat. It backs up to show us the decisive victory of Christ in the past, in his first coming, through his life, death, and resurrection. Christ decisively defeated think that's what Revelation is doing here, not just because this is a pattern we've seen since chapter 16, but I told you there were two reasons. The second one is because we've seen Revelation describe this exact event before in Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 parallel each other like crazy, as if we are seeing the same events unfold from different perspectives. That's something we've seen Revelation do a lot. You remember back in Revelation chapter 12? There we got a vision of the first coming of Christ, the woman who represented the people of God, pregnant with the Messiah, the dragon waiting to devour. Y'all remember this? We got a vision of the first coming of Christ and how through his life, death, and resurrection, he defeated Satan. 
It's the second reason I believe that these first three reasons are, these first three verses of Revelation 20 are about the victory of Christ in the past because of the parallels between Revelation 20 and Revelation 12. Revelation 12 clearly gives us a vision of the first coming of Christ, defeating Satan. Specifically, Satan's defeat is pictured in Revelation 12 as him being dominated by an angel and thrown down. Listen to Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth. That's interesting. Because what we see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, is Satan being dominated by an angel and bound. Look at verse 2 again. Chapter 20. And he, the angel, seized the dragon. That serpent, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. These two passages seem to be describing the exact same event. Did you notice they even call Satan the exact same thing? The dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Again and again and again throughout Revelation, we've seen that when you get linguistic echoes like this, it typically means you're seeing descriptions of the same event from different perspectives. And is that not what we have here? Two visions of how the first coming of Christ defeated Satan. In both Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, Satan's dominated by an angel. In one, he's described as being thrown down, and in the other, he's described as being bound. But I believe those are the same thing because they have the same result. You've got to remember, these are symbols, and they're pliable. Okay, Christ, when we first saw him, he was a lion and a lamb. You can't draw that. You're not meant to. Language can do things that aren't can't. No offense, Amy. It can create pictures that can't be put into the physical realm. And Revelation does this for us again and again. And I think the same thing's happening here with Satan being described as thrown down and Satan being described as bound because those two things have the same result, namely the defeat of Satan's deception. The defeat of his deception. Revelation, if you go back and look, go back, I, I, I encourage you, go back and compare Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 later today. Revelation 12, if you look at verses 10 and 11, they tell us that as a result of Satan being thrown down, the saints conquer him. And the very end of the chapter shows us what that conquering looks like. It doesn't look like them keeping their lives. No, he often kills them. They actually conquer because they love not their lives, even unto death, we're told in chapter 12. Their conquering doesn't look like them keeping their lives. Their conquering looks like them keeping their faith. Satan's deception is defeated. Revelation 12 is clear. Satan may kill Christians, give them death, but he cannot conquer them with deception. Do you remember how the chapter ends by showing us that picture of how the saints conquer Satan? It ends with Satan trying to drown the the church in a flood of deception. But God sovereignly creates a barrier and Satan's deception is defeated. That's the result of Satan being thrown down. And in chapter 20, we see that that is also the result of Satan being bound. Look at the end of Revelation 20 and verse 2. The angel bound Satan for a thousand years. We'll get to that. Angel bound Satan for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over. This is not a literal locking up. Okay, you can't can't picture Satan as like in a jail cell, like the angel came down with a literal... This passage also calls Satan a dragon. He's not. These are symbols, pictures, images meant to communicate truths. And we're being told right here that God is sovereignly putting in place an immovable barrier that is blocking something specific. What is it? Threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over, so that... Here's what God's sovereign barrier is blocking so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He'd do a lot. But he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. The result of Satan being thrown down in chapter 12 and bound in chapter 20 is the same. The decisive defeat 
of the deception, of, of Satan's deception. The deception that he's been spreading since he first slithered into Eden as that ancient serpent. That's why he's mentioned. Right here, there's the only place in all of Revelation that mentions the fact that he is the ancient serpent of old. He's been deceiving since the beginning. That is what is being dealt with right here. These chapters are describing the same event. The victory of Christ in the past when he came and crushed that serpent's head. Christ himself described his first coming both in terms of Satan being thrown down. Just look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 18. And he described his first coming as resulting in Satan being bound. Look at Matthew 12 and verse 29. Again and again, the New Testament speaks of Christ's first coming, especially his crucifixion, as the defeat of Satan. John 12, 31, Colossians 2, 15, Hebrews 2, 14, and I got a whole list where I could just keep going. Through the cross, Satan has been defeated, thrown down, and bound. So, why doesn't it feel like it? I mean, that's the question, right? Everybody's asking probably right about now. It doesn't feel like Satan has been thrown down. It feels like he's the god of this world. Isn't that how 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes him? It doesn't feel like Satan is bound. It feels like he is quite free to roam around and do all the damage he wants to. Doesn't 1 Peter 5.8 say that he is a roaring lion roaming around seeking someone to devour? How in the world can we say Satan has been bound, thrown down, defeated? Because both Revelation 12 and 20 make it clear that being thrown down and bound are not the end of Satan's evil, but the decisive defeat of his deception. We see martyrs in both chapters after Satan's been thrown down, after he's been bound. This is not the end of his evil. Revelation has constantly, consistently showed us that we are not guaranteed physical protection on any level, but we are guaranteed spiritual protection from our sovereign God. Is that not what the sealing of the saints back in Revelation 7 was all about? He puts his seal on their foreheads not to protect them physically. They go on to be martyred, but to protect them spiritually, to guarantee that they will not give in to Deception. Revelation 12 is very honest about the fact that Satan still roams around opposing the church, even killing Christians, but he cannot conquer them with his deception. Revelation 12.11, they have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. He might kill them, but he won't conquer them through deception. To cling to Christ, undefeated by Satan's deception. That's what Revelation means by conquering. And Revelation 20 declares the same thing. Yes, Satan is bound, but it is not a, it's not symbolic of the end of his evil as the God of this world. No, we're specifically told that being bound symbolizes the decisive defeat of his deception. Look one more time at the end of Revelation 20 and verse 3. The angel threw Satan into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him. That's all. It's decisive. It's done. So Almost like Christ said something about that on the cross. It's finished so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Satan being bound decisively defeats his deception. And it does so, I think we see right here, it defeats his deception in at least two ways. That's why we're shown the same event from multiple perspectives to give us different truths. We don't have time to go back and highlight the truths we saw in chapter 12, but right here in chapter 20, we are being shown that his deception has been defeated in at least two ways. First, with regard to evangelism. With regard to evangelism. Verse 3 said Satan was bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. In other words, he had been overwhelmingly deceiving the nations. We know that just by reading the Old Testament. I mean, you read throughout the Old Testament, with rare exception, the nations do not worship God. They oppose Him. They oppress His people. Apostle Paul puts it like this in Acts 14 and verse 16. In past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. But now, 
Paul says in Acts 13 and verse 47 that because of Christ, the prophecy of Isaiah 49 has been fulfilled. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, a light for the nations. I've made you a light for the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And no amount of deception from the devil can defeat that mission. Christ himself guaranteed that. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We just talked about how in Revelation 7, we saw Christ seal his saints. And Revelation 7 shows us that those saints are from every nation. Satan can't deceive the nations any longer. That doesn't mean that there will not be individually deceived people, but that means that the gospel will go forth and God's people from every tribe, from every language, from every tongue, when they hear the gospel and he opens their eyes to see the beauty of the glory of Christ, they will come. Revelation 7 showed us Christ sealed every one of his saints from every nation. Revelation 9 revealed that that seal protects them not from death, but from deception. Every one of Christ's people from every nation will make it all the way home clinging to Christ. Christ's kingdom will be populated by the nations who once walked in darkness but now will live in the light. Satan's deception is defeated with regard to evangelism. And second thing I think we see here, Satan's deception is defeated with regard to the end. Satan's deception is defeated with regard to the end. Look at verse 3 again of Revelation 20. It said that Satan was bound so that he might no longer deceive the nations until until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Verses 7 to 10 are going to describe this little while for us of Satan's release. And what it describes is the end. Which I keep saying the end. The end is really a misnomer. It's just the end of evil. It's the beginning of a beautiful new creation. This little while of Satan's release in verses 7 to 10, it describes the end. It describes Satan deceiving the nations to oppose God in the war. In other words, we are being shown that Satan is bound with regard to the end. He cannot bring about the end, for he is not in control. He's not even in control of evil. Evil in this world is restricted, held at bay, bound. Revelation has pointed out this reality again and again. It's pointed out this reality that, that evil is restricted. It is unable of its own volition to bring about the end, to cut short the mission of God to save his people. It is unable to bring about the end. We've seen that again and again through the seven seals, through the seven trumpets, and through the seven bowls. We've seen it in other places, but I'll just give you those really quickly. When we saw the breaking of the sixth seal, we saw God holding, go back and look at it, we saw God holding back evil until he completed the sealing of his people. With the blowing of the sixth trumpet, we saw God release evil angels that he'd been restraining, we're told, for the appointed hour, day, month, and year he had prepared for them. And with the pouring out of the sixth bowl, we saw the great river, which had been a barrier, was a symbolic barrier against evil, holding back the hordes of the world from bringing about the war. We saw that river symbolically dry up, God removing the barrier because he is sovereign over the end. He determines when it is brought about again and again. Revelation gives us symbolic images of God restraining, limiting, binding evil so that it can only serve his purposes and his plan even when it comes to the end. That's what we see in Revelation 20. Satan bound, unable to bring about the end until God has accomplished all his evangelistic purposes, saved all his people from all nations. Satan can't do anything to deceive them and defeat that plan. Shades, do you see the victory of Christ in the past. The devil has been defeated. His deception cannot 
win? Do you see how this empowers our victory in the present? We're being shown the witness of the church will be successful. Those whom God has sealed from every nation will be guaranteed saved. This plan is not an if. It's a win. It's not a maybe. It's a will. Satan cannot cut this mission short. It will be completed. Satan cannot conquer this mission. He will be defeated. And we are being shown this so that we will be empowered to participate in this victorious mission right now. Yes, even amidst our Advent-like lives. In fact, it is precisely through our Advent-like lives that our words supremely show forth the worth of Christ to the world. It is through all of your longing and your waiting when you're experiencing that and you keep proclaiming the hope that you have in Christ. It is, it is through all of your weeping and your groaning when through all of that you keep praising Christ as your hope. It is through all of that. When the, when the world sees that, even though we are a people who are sorrowful, we're also a people who always have a reason to keep rejoicing. It's through that that our words supremely show forth the worth of Christ. Shades, do you see your victory in the present? The devil is defeated. His deception can't win. That empowers us to bear witness with our words. Words that his deception cannot defeat. Satan cannot defeat such a witness. He can only amplify it. For any suffering that he brings into your life only amplifies your testimony about the worth and beauty of Christ. It only amplifies that you keep clinging to Christ, keep proclaiming Him, keep praising Him. It only amplifies that you truly believe He really is your greatest treasure. Any amount of suffering that Satan brings into your life only amplifies your testimony of the worth of Christ. Even if Satan kills you, martyrdom itself is merely a megaphone for the worth of Jesus. He can't defeat such a witness. Do you see? He's conquered, defeated even if He kills you. We see that explicitly in verses 4-6, to which reveal the victory of the church in the present. Revelation 20 has shown us the victory of Christ in the past, and it's done that with the purpose of empowering this second thing we need to see. Number two, the victory of the church in the present. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Right here, I believe that John is seeing the reality concerning the saints who look like they were conquered in this life, defeated. And the reality is that they are currently ruling and reigning with Christ as conquerors. I think he is seeing the victorious saints in glory. Why? John sees thrones. This is Daniel 7 language. All throughout Revelation, anytime we see thrones, they are heavenly thrones. John sees thrones. And in fact, This echoes Daniel 7 so strongly. Let me read this verse to you. Let me read verse 4 to you the way that I personally would translate it from the Greek to, I think, better, more accurately reflect the Greek and to better echo what it's saying from Daniel chapter 7, the the reference to Daniel 7.22 that it contains. If you want to know how I got there with my translation, ask me later. I'll be happy to give you all the technical details. So here's my translation of verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those for whom judgment was given. That's the parallel to Daniel 7 and verse 22. In, In other words, seated on the throne are saints who were judged by the world as guilty, but God has judged them as innocent. Judgment has been given on their behalf. They have been vindicated. I think that becomes more apparent as we keep reading. Seated on the thrones were those for whom judgment was given. Namely... There is no period there in Greek. 
And the connecting word right there, I think, is an explicitive. It goes on to explain who's on the throne. Namely, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, even those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Two things to note. First, the wording right here in this passage is a near-perfect parallel to Revelation 6 and verse 9. Go back and look at it. Verse 4, Revelation 6 and verse 9, near-perfect parallels. What did John see in Revelation 6 and verse 9? He saw martyrs in heaven. And I think that that parallel makes clear we're seeing the same thing right here. Second thing to note, we're specifically told that these martyrs were beheaded. Now again, remember all of this is symbolic language. I don't think that this means all we're seeing are martyrs. I think this is a picture of faithfully clinging to Christ throughout life, whether or not that ends in martyrdom or whether it ends in natural death. I think this includes all of us, okay? But we're specifically told symbolically that these martyrs were beheaded. Why? Because in the Roman Empire... Beheading was a method of execution particularly used for Roman citizens because it was way more humane than the other forms of execution they'd come up with, like crucifixion. So they used it for their own citizens. It was way more humane. It was a a clean death. I think we are being symbolically shown that these are those who were killed or who gave their entire lives not as faithful citizens of Rome, but as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. Is that not exactly what the text goes on to say? That these are those who had not worshipped the beast or received his mark? Remember, that's to give your allegiance to the beast. They came to life and reigned with Christ. John refuses to call their death, death. He calls it resurrection. Verse 5, the rest of the dead those who died not as faithful citizens of God's kingdom, but who worshiped the beast, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. I don't believe that Revelation right here is talking about physical resurrection, and I think that's why it calls this the first resurrection. It's the only place in your entire Bible where you will find first applied to the word resurrection. And if you look throughout Revelation, Revelation consistently uses the term first when it's talking about things that belong to this temporary age before the coming of Christ. In fact, next week we're going to see in the early verses of Revelation 21, we're going to see all of the first things pass away. The first things, they will all pass away when Christ comes to make all things new. First, old means that which belongs to this temporary age. Second, new, that means that which belongs to the permanent age to come. So the first resurrection is how Revelation refers to the life of those who die in Christ. Death is not death for them. Did not Jesus himself say this? John chapter 11 and verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We never die. Death is not death for us. It's a kind of resurrection, an entrance into the presence of Christ. And verse 6 declares, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, permanent death that belongs to the age to come, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. These promises right here, The second death has no power over us. It will reign with Christ as priests. These are echoes of promises that were made earlier in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus told the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death. That's what conquering looks like. And in Revelation 2 verse 11, he promised them, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Permanent death in the age to come. Be faithful unto death. You won't be hurt by the second death. Is that not the promise we're seeing fulfilled to those right here who have been faithful unto death? 
A second death would not be their experience. No, Revelation 7 and verse 15 promised that they would be before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple as priests. Those promises in Revelation 7 are made specifically to people who conquer by being faithful unto death. Death won't be death to them. They will live and reign with Christ. This is what we see in Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6. The victory of the church in the present, reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Years. I told you we'd get there. Y'all still with me? I told you, fire hydrant. I wasn't kidding. All right. So they reign with Christ for a thousand years. I know that you know by this point in time, you know that I think this number is symbolic. Revelation has used symbolic numbers all over the place. And in fact, we've, we've seen it use multiples of 1,000 symbolically several times. As a matter of fact, 1,000 is an offhanded number that gets used pretty consistently, even in non-apocalyptic literature, symbolically. Uh, you know references where it gets used symbolically. Uh, the, the Lord owns how many cattle on how many hills? He owns the cattle on what? What about the thousand and first hill? No, I mean, it's, it's symbolic. It's, you know, I own them all. Big, complete fullness. And we have seen Revelation use multiples of a thousand to emphasize fullness and completeness. And here, I believe, is emphasizing the full and complete keeping of God's promises to those who conquer. This thousand years, this is right now. Right now, we've already seen how Satan is bound and his deception is defeated right now. And what we are seeing is that Christians whom this world thinks they've defeated, they are victorious right now. The dead in Christ aren't dead. They live and reign right now. Shades, do you see the victory of the church in the present? Death is defeated. Do you see how it empowers victory in us right now? Now, even amidst our Advent-like lives, yes, we live longing and hoping and waiting. Yes, we live weeping and groaning and praying amidst the brokenness of this world. But 2 Corinthians 4.17 declares that this light momentary affliction, all of our weeping, groaning, waiting, praying, longing, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's as if three and a half years of affliction are preparing us for a thousand years of glory. You see what I did right there? That's a Revelation joke. Every time Revelation, I'll explain the joke. Every time Revelation has used numbers to symbolically speak of our suffering in the church age, it's used some form of three and a half, three and a half years, emphasizing its brevity. But now, when Revelation 20 speaks of those who have died in Christ as conquerors, the rest of the church age for them is like a thousand years in glory. It's almost like Romans 8.18 is true. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Revelation looks at our suffering in the church age and says, hold on, cling to Christ. He will empower you promise it's short it's brief and what awaits is magnanimous and massive and glorious when we live clinging to our glorious christ who is beyond all comparison when, when we cling to him through all the longing hoping waiting through all the, the weeping the groaning the praying and when we cling to him even through death we bear witness to the world of his worth. We do it with our wounds. Is this not what Revelation has shown us consistently all throughout it? That we bear witness to the worth of Christ through our words and our wounds. That even when we're wounded or even killed, we still cling to Christ, showing forth that he is worth more than even our own lives. Shades, do you see the victory of the church in the present? Death is defeated. And that empowers us to bear witness with our wounds. We will cling to Christ even if it costs our lives because that is conquering. That 
is victory. And we know that full and final victory is coming. We see it explicitly in verses 7 to 15, which reveal the victory of Christ and the church in the future. We've seen the victory of Christ in the past, which empowers the victory of the church in the present. But our present victory is also empowered by the third and final thing we need to see, the victory of Christ and the church in the future. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, in other words, when the church age concludes, Christ comes again. Satan will be released from his prison. In other words, God will sovereignly remove the hold that has kept evil at bay in order to bring about his final confrontation with evil. So verse 8 says, Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, that's worldwide, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the war, is what the Greek explicitly says right there. Their number is like the sand of the sea. This is the war. The war that's already been described to us in Revelation 16 and in Revelation 19. All three passages call it the war, and they alone speak of the war. They all use the exact same Greek terminology to talk about the gathering of nations and kings. In fact, Revelation 20 gives these nations and kings names. It calls them Gog and Magog. Those names, if you want to read some fun apocalyptic reading later, those names come from Ezekiel 38 and 39. We do not know who or where they were historically, but Gog and Magog came to be symbols for God's enemies that he would fight in a final end-of-days war. If you go back and read about that end-of-days war in Ezekiel 38 and 39, once Gog and Magog are defeated, Ezekiel 39 and verse 17 calls the birds to come and eat their flesh. Where have we heard that before? Was that not a part of Revelation 19's description of the war? Do you see what I'm showing you? Both Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 are describing the final war that fulfill Ezekiel's prophecy. The same war. And as we've seen before, this final war is actually not much of a war at all. Remember, this is apocalyptic symbolism. I am not saying there's literally going to be a battlefield where like the hordes of hell emerge and we're all with Jesus with our swords and on our horses. This is symbolic apocalyptic imagery of the truth that God will return, Christ will return, and he will bring evil to an end. And this war won't be much of a war. Verse 9. And they, Gog and Magog, the nations, Satan, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were also thrown, should be the verb in Greek supplied there. This is a simultaneous action. They're all thrown in at the same time. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is Christ's final victory over Satan. Verses 11 and 12 go on to give us a vision of his final victory over all who have allied themselves with Satan. The scene moves from the battlefield to the courtroom as God sits upon his great white throne. We're told that the books were opened, symbolic of all that God knows, which is everything. Books were open and according to verses 12 through 15, if you read through those verses, I'm going to try to summarize some of this for us here at the end, but if you read through, some, through those verses, there are two ways that you can be judged. You can be judged according to your own works that are recorded in the books, or there's another book that verse 12 says was opened. The book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And if your name is written in that book because you believed in the Lamb, you embraced Him as your treasure, you clung to Christ, then you will be judged according to His work and not your own. The focus of this passage right here 
is on those whose names are not in the book. This is showing us the end of evil. It's shown us the end of Satan, now the end of all who ally themselves with him. They're brought forth, they're brought to life for final judgment. But notice as you read through this, Revelation refuses to call this resurrection. Like Just like Revelation refused to call the death of Christians death, it refuses to call the resurrection of those who followed the dragon resurrection. Instead, verses 14 through 15, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Their resurrection is not resurrection. It's death. The second death. In other words, this is belonging to the age to come, not to the temporary present age. This is eternal death, eternal judgment. Fire has symbolized all throughout Revelation judgment. And right here, they are eternally thrown into a lake of it. Shades, this is a hard truth, but it is a good truth. This is gospel good news because this is the final defeat of all who have opposed God and opposed His people. This is the righting of every wrong. This is the perfect doing of all justice. What every human heart cries for and longs for, for the world to be remade and to be a world in which righteousness dwells, perfect justice reigns, perfect peace is done. This is the the destruction of all that has destroyed creation. This is the end of sin and evil. This is perfect justice. This is the burning love of God that we saw displayed on the battlefield back in verse 9. Look back at verse 9. As the enemies of God surround, here's what we read, they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down, the burning love of God for his saints, for his beloved city that he loves. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Beloved. The beloved, does that word not jump out at you right here? Beloved, the beloved city. The author of Revelation is who? The Apostle John. You know his nickname? He's the beloved disciple. But that title we are shown right here belongs to all disciples, to every follower of Christ. We are his beloved. And when the enemies of God surround right here the camp of his saints, that's wilderness language. Camp, for we live in the wilderness of this world, the wilderness of this Advent-like life, but even when the enemies of God surrounds what appear to be the weak camp of the saints, we will not fear because we know our true eternal identity. We are God's beloved city. And the day is coming when that will be made clear because he will return to bring evil to an end. And like verse 11 says, from his presence, earth and sky will flee away. As all this old creation giving way to new creation. Of new creation and the camp of the saints on that day will be revealed as the eternal beloved city of God that they are. Shades, do you see the victory of Christ and the church in the future? The devil and death will be defeated. Death itself thrown into the lake of fire, we are told. The devil and death will be defeated. Do you see how that empowers our victory right now in the present, right amidst our Advent-like lives? Our waiting, our Advent waiting, it will end when Christ, whom we are longing for, our Advent longing, it will end when he comes again, fulfilling all of our Advent hoping. Our tears will be dried, our groans turn to glory, our deepest prayer will be finally and fully answered. What is our deepest prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That prayer will be answered. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will, shades. The advent is coming. Evil has been defeated. It is defeated. It will be defeated because Christ has been victorious. He is victorious. And he will be victorious.